You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities. Um, we are still doing our thing here. I don't know how to start these. I really don't. But, you know, we're just going to roll with it. So. <laughs> well, we've kind of been all over the place because we've been in Samuel and we've been in, in Psalms. Psalms. Jumped over to Mark for a little bit. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, w- this yeah. is... And by the time you do like, a you know, your sixth intro for the weekend, you're like, <laughs> I don't even know what to say. So I guess let's just get to it. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, well, you know, we got to take a good break and eat some um, yummy chicken last night. Yeah. So that was good. So even had some Brussels sprouts and I don't like Brussels sprouts and they were good. So <laughs> yeah, you know, you're winning when you can make Brussels sprouts for people don't like Brussels sprouts and they eat them. Exactly. So And enjoy them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, well, and that's so the thing. Bonus. Well, I come here and it's like, okay, so what food are we getting? And y'all always apologize for serving me leftovers at some point during the week. And I'm like, no, y'all have good leftovers, so it's okay. Yeah. Uh, so. Well, if, if it starts out good, it generally, we, we try to do stuff that, that keeps over well, just because it's it's easier to just cook on the weekends and take it through the week. But Well, y'all have insane weeks, but you're, you're in that space of your life where kids and yeah. running and all that good stuff. So, But it, I, it's a good phase, but it's just a busy phase. Absolutely. So we are picking up in chapter 23, and uh, we're in 1 Samuel. Uh, back there for a little while. We're going to jump back to the Psalms uh, probably next episode. But David's still on the run. He's just received news of Saul's uh, massacre at Nov, and Abathar has joined David. So now David has the the foundational setup for his royal court. He's He's got a prophet, the prophet Gad, who showed up earlier. Mm-hmm. We have the priest, Abathar, and he's got a growing army because now we've moved from 400 men. Now he's up to 600 men. So he's still drawing those people who are embittered of spirit, people who are in debt and people who are under siege uh, during Saul's reign. They, they are just flocking to him. Yep. And so, um, you know, all he needs at this point really is some working capital and a way to find provisions for his troops. But before David can address those needs, we find out in verse 1 that the, the Philistines are attacking Keilah. It's a city. Um, it's on the border, and it's threshing season. So the threshing floors are, are filled, and that's what the Philistines are specifically targeting. Yeah, coming to steal the food. Yeah, and we've seen this before with Gideon. Yeah, and a bug's life. <laughs> well, oh, sorry. Oh. <laughs> that too. <laughs> Not as inspired, but still. Still, you know, an interesting story. Uh, but uh, yeah, but with Gideon and the Midianites, that they would come in after everyone had, you know, made their fields for the year and collected their harvest. And done and, all the work. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And so we, we have this little reminder of Gideon, and there are several little ties back to Gideon with David. And they're presented as a contrast because remember, Gideon was the people asked him to be king mm-hmm. and he, he refused the title, um, abstentiously, but he, he might actually have functioned in that capacity for right. all practical purposes. And then of course his son, uh, Abimelech did accept the title and that led to all sorts of things. You can go back and listen to her episode on judges for more of that. But, um, 
the contrast is, is so so stark. So, be, and we see that beginning in verse two because David goes to inquire of the Lord, mm-hmm. and he asked the Lord, "Shall I go and attack these Philistines?" And the Lord said to David, "Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah." Now, when Gideon was approached, he had to be talked into accepting the mission. He had to be convinced, and you know we're all familiar with that story of the golden, oh, not the golden fleece. That's a totally other story, but the the fleece um, being laid out, and if it was dry, and if it was wet, and if the ground around it was dry and wet, and all these signs that he had to do to to really believe that this was where God was calling him uh, and what he was supposed to do. David doesn't wait for God to show up and say, "Hey, you need to do this." David actually sees the need. He goes to God and says, "Should I be the one to address it?" Right. And so right there's your, your, first, your first big contrast because, you know, David's running for his life at this point, and he still takes time out of this, this chaos that's going on in his world to actually address the needs of the people, the people that he's going to be king over. And this, this tells you something about his ability to be a king, that he would put his personal needs aside in order to defend them. Now, if you read through this closely, you're going to notice that there's absolutely no mention of the Arium and Thummim. The, um, they're, gone, they're totally absent. Matter of fact, uh, the priest doesn't appear until verse 6, and we're told that he brings them with him. Mm-hmm. So this conversation that David is having with God really sounds a lot more direct. It sounds more personal. It, it reminded me of Judges 1 whenever they're asking, you know, how should we proceed? And mm-hmm. there, there's no mention of any kind of divination at this point, uh, even uh, divination that's sanctioned through the Urim and Thummim, that it, it's just he's having a conversation. So um, verse 3, David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid, in Jude, afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go to Keilah against the enemies of the Philistines? So like I said, Keilah's, it's a border town. It's one of the first lines of defense for Judah. And the rabbis claim that this is precisely why David was allowed to make this attack. Because supposedly, now this is kind of ties back to the showbread um, episode, supposedly this is happening on a Sabbath. Now, this, the text does not say that, but I think it is kind of interesting uh, what the rabbis read into it. Because they say he inquires of the Lord not whether or not he should go defend the city, but whether or not he should make war on the Sabbath, because making war on the Sabbath would have been forbidden. And the rabbis say that if the attacks had been for taking lives, for for killing people, then absolutely it was allowed to make war on the Sabbath. But we're specifically told that this is not about killing people. This is about plundering the threshing floors. Right. So... The exemption that the rabbis provide for David is that as a border town, it had to be defended at all costs because ultimately that saved more lives than if he had gone to war. So this is why he's allowed according to their thoughts. And, you know, I, like I said, that's, that's rabbinic tradition, and I don't want to— And why not just go with what the text says? As opposed to adding the Sabbath information in there. Yeah, well, and I think it's because the rabbis have such a huge issue trying to reconcile what David did with the showbread. And what exemptions did David have under the law? And, and they, you know, there's so many times that David seems to set the law aside in order to do his own thing. Yeah, but why, 
why add more trouble to the text is what I want to know. I, I have the rabbis. This is what they do. I, well, I just, I have a, a, a problem with the, with any kind of, of philosophy or way of interpreting things that adds complications right to the text yeah and adds complications to to things i i mean if it helps you sleep at night sure that can be (laughs) what you think but i don't see how adding something that's not even in the text to it yeah i mean because to me i'm looking at this with uh david asking if he should do this as kind of going hey, this might not be the best strategy because while we're fighting, Saul mm-hmm. and his men could come take us. Mm-hmm. Why isn't, you know, this should be Saul's job. Mm-hmm. Why is Saul not here? Should yes. I be presuming to take the role of the king? Mm-hmm. These are the things I would assume he'd be asking about. Right. But, you Well, know. I, I think that really goes back, like I said, the attitude of the rabbis towards David. They really didn't know what to do with him because he was that messianic figure. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to put him on this pedestal, and they did put him on this pedestal. And so trying to figure out what to do, how do you deal with this guy who's supposed to be the epitome of what God wants, and yet he still seems to be, you know, he just tosses the law aside willy-nilly sometimes, it seems, which is, you know, I didn't think of it until we're, we're talking right now, but think about how this plays into to Jesus' ministry. And the fact that, you know, Jesus so often, if you don't know, like we were talking earlier with um, the oral tradition and the, the Mishnah, mm-hmm. if you don't know what Jesus was referencing, then it seems like Jesus is tossing the law aside. Right, and, right. And so... Which, again, why it's important to study what's actually <laughs> there and available. And, you know, granted, we didn't, you know, it's only been with, I don't even know how many years that Christians have really taken the idea of... of considering the oral Torah at all, mm-hmm. let alone knowing it exists. Yeah. You know, so, Pretty. you know, it's a lot of this stuff is relatively new to us, mm-hmm. but it's not new to the Jews of the day. It's obviously not new to Jesus, especially yeah. if you're actually looking at him affirming the oral Torah in the, the incident with the, right. the wheat. Well, and, and as far as part of the answer to your question there, how long it's been a part of Christian consciousness, if you will, uh, really goes back to 1948 when Israel was a nation, and that's mm-hmm. when uh, the the rabbis and the, the the teachers of Judaism began to really embrace Christian teachers because it, of the gratitude towards the U.S. and what they did in World War II, and that's that's the reason why we see a lot of this resurgence. Now, what I find to be really funny, and I'm probably going to make some people mad, is a lot of um, the churches out there that are. Um, into the messianic Judaism and saying that Christians need to follow the the um, laws of Judaism, mm-hmm. which I do not agree with, and so I'll just go on record with that. So there's no ambiguity. They will reject the oral Torah, but then they'll do all of these feasts and these celebrations. And mm-hmm. the only reason why they know how to do these things is because of the oral Torah. Sure, sure. So you know, it, it's that kind of disconnect that sometimes we have with Christianity. Well, I mean, with most, thing, most things in our lives and uh, not realizing where we get the information from, it's just kind of floating around and we grab on to what's useful. And so the, the oral Torah does help us. And uh, we, we've talked about that several times, um, in particular with uh, laws that just don't make sense to us. Yeah. And, and, and we're also not saying that the oral Torah should necessarily be authoritative, but it can be informative of how mm-hmm. a ancient... Uh, Jewish author 
or first century author was mm-hmm. really thinking about this stuff. Absolutely. And, and the same thing uh, goes for Second Temple Lit and the Dead Sea Scrolls. They, they really do help us understand uh, never should be put above the written word, but right. can, can be a useful tool. And so um, we will return to our story um, because the, the thing is, uh, they take this even further. One of the things that they bring into is maybe the men were afraid of making this attack on the Sabbath and violating the Torah and that David's men were actually more devout than Saul's men. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. you know, like I said, <laughs> tradition, um, but I honestly think that a second solution for this makes more sense. And it's that these men remembered what happened in that last part of Judges when the elders went up and inquired of the Lord, should we attack Benjamin? And God said, yes. Atta-. Well, actually, they said, who should lead out? They didn't even ask if they should. They said, who should lead out? And um, you know, God said, Judah. And God gave them clear-cut instructions, and everything falls apart mm-hmm. because they asked the wrong question. And, you know, David's men may have been worried that, one, David didn't hear from God as clearly as they might hope he would. They could have been worried that it, they're going to have a repeat of what happened there with Benjamin. Uh, you know, this idea of communicating with God, remember, we're moving out of the time where uh, those big miracles of Genesis mm-hmm. and Exodus. Yep. And so... The, the angel of the Lord had departed in Judges 2. This is a, you know, a few generations removed. We, we've got some debate on how many. So the idea that someone could communicate directly with God who wasn't an official prophet would have been earth-shattering and yeah. really hard for them to comprehend. So verse 4, David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hands. And so the men are reassured. Uh, they've got the answer they want. Now it's not just you should go. You're going to go and you're going to win. And in verse 5, we're told that they do go and they take the Philistine livestock. I think this is interesting. Uh, the Philistine livestock. Now the question is, what is the Philistine livestock doing in Keilah? Why, why is it there? And there's two possible solutions. Again, I don't think one precludes the other. One is that they just turn their cattle loose in the fields to eat up what had been there, so let them mm-hmm. graze and destroy the crops. The other one is this could have been beast of burden to carry back that what would, they had plundered. That would have been my assumption if they're using them to pull carts or something like that. Absolutely, and we know that they did do that. We, we, we know from archaeological finds that, that they did use oxen to pull carts at this point in and time. And also earlier in the text. That, yeah, and we find it there. <laughs> so we, we've got multiple confirmation that this was definitely a method that they used because uh, I'm assuming you're referring to um, returning the Ark of the Covenant. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. So we've, we've got that, which is kind of interesting when, for me when you can see those archaeological confirmations of the script and, and being able to say, this definitely is a product of its time. Mm-hmm. And so um, David and his men, they, they save the city. They do what God says they're going to do. Um, now, a little trivia, uh, the Hebrew, his men in this verse, is actually spelt in the singular. But sometimes in, um, when you're reading Hebrew there, and you're doing it properly, you, you do it uh, according to tradition, and the tradition dictates that you pronounce it differently. And because context, obviously, David did not go with his man, he went with his men, then 
you do pronounce it in the plural, but the, the word itself is in the singular. And so the rabbis said this means that David took his best men, that not all of the men went with him. Okay. Uh, and there are different places in the, in the Torah and, and, well, the Tanakh, uh, the Old Testament overall, that you will, you will find that there's those little discrepancies in how it's pronounced versus how it's written. Uh, and those are significant. Um, a lot of times they're a little clue into how, uh, again, how the ancients read the text. So verse six, now Abathar shows up and we're told that uh, he'd fled to David to Keilah and had come down with the ephod in his hand. So the, the ephod that, that he's bringing is not the one that Goliath's sword is, was hidden behind. This is the, the one that has the compartment for the Urim and Thummim. So now they're there on the scene. Before this, David didn't have it. And the fact that David has this and he can now consult it in the presence of his men, the men can witness the answer because now it's, it's something that can be, you know, it can be viewed, it can be seen. And so the men can see how God's going to respond and he doesn't have to confirm. And this is the appropriate way for a king to, to seek God. It's not that he was inappropriate before, but this is kind of what the culture expected. This is what his society uh, really kind of wanted from a king to to go through the proper channels and have all the ceremonial and ritual um, pieces in place. So verse seven, uh, Saul hears that that David's at Keilah and he he realizes that he has a chance to trap David in a city of bars and gates or gates and bars. And like you said earlier, why isn't Saul already there? Why isn't he, you know, out defending the city, his city that's been attacked by the Philistines? Right. So you, you realize at this point, Saul really wasn't doing his business as a king because he had been too busy chasing David. He was focusing on his own agenda versus what God had commanded him to do. And this is one of the reasons why Saul is such a lousy king. He never seems to realize... Just do what God tells you to do. Right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Basic instructions. Yeah. It, it's like, it's not that hard. And we were reminded that everything Saul has done it has set David up to succeed. So David gets to step into that kingly role, and he gets to demonstrate to the people that God is with him. And, you know, he, he acquires provisions for his troops. The one thing that Saul definitely doesn't want him to be able to do at this point. Mm-hmm. I mean, if David can't feed his army, then what happens? They're going to desert him. So even the practical aspects of David coming to power are being taken care of through Saul's neglect of his kingship. And notice in the verse, Saul doesn't even spare a thought for the people or the, the city. He, he, just, he just wants to go after David. He's not even relieved that David saved the city. He, he's not happy that his subjects have been spared, you know, this Philistine attack. All he can see is an opportunity to, to kill David. So Saul summons his men to Keilah to besiege David and David's men. And, you know, again, we're looking at the purpose and not the practical and unavoidable ramifications of besieging David in Keilah. Right. He would have been besieging his own city. Yeah. And sieges at this time, these were horrible things because you got stuck in a city under siege 
you didn't have any food. People starved to death. Uh, you know, immediately all the animals were killed. But then, like I said, there's situations where cannibalism uh, comes into play because there is no food. And Saul's willing to do this. And we shouldn't be surprised based on what he did to the priest in Nob. So we already know he has absolutely no problem destroying the very ones he should be protecting. And so the fact that he's willing to sacrifice these people really puts David in stark contrast because here's someone who shouldn't have to protect them, but is stepping into that role. Right. So verse nine, uh, David knows that Saul's plotting against him and, and he, we are not told how he knows. We just, he knows, and we shouldn't be surprised that David has, you know, he can either have messengers uh, who are informing him of this. He could uh, possibly just be getting information and revelation from God himself. But this is, this is leading into the first time that we see David actually engage in a ritual inquiry of, the, of God. And so in verses uh, 10 and 11, David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks, him to, seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city. And notice what David says there, Saul specifically coming to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as, you, as your servant has heard? O Lord, God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Now, we're going to assume, based on all the information, so it's a little assumption, but, but not a huge assumption, uh, that the main problem with the Urim and Thummim is that you get yes or no answers. You, you don't. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, well, yeah, that's, that's, oh my gosh, I've heard so much speculation on what they were and how they worked. It's a little... Wild. Well, and that's the thing. We don't have a lot of clear um, information in the Bible. We've got some other customs outside of Israel that really resemble this. And that seems to be the method that there would uh, be a yes or no answer. And, you know, David's just posed two questions back to back. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, will they surrender me to Saul and will he come down? And, and God answers the last question, you know, Saul's on his way. So David, in verse 12, asks the, the first question again, um, will the men of Keilah surrender Saul into his hands? And God affirms that he w- they will. Mm-hmm. And so now I know you read Heiser's work on this mm-hmm. because. Yeah. He- well, a couple of things, actually, this, this reminds me of. Um, one of them, actually, it reminds me of Lawhead. Um, so the, in the Pendragon cycle, I don't remember which book, but there's a part where they're, they, you know, uh, you know, uh, Merlin was trained in magic, mm-hmm. um, but then he, you know, he stopped using it as he grew closer to, you know, as, as he, in the book, he comes to faith in Christ. So he stops using mm-hmm. the magics. Uh, and there's a, there's a part of the book. And when you're talking about how now the Urim and Thummim are here, so we can have a, have a display in front of the men. There's a part in the book where the, the soldiers just demand that Merlin gives them a sign. Mm-hmm. And he, he's like, I don't really like to do this but anymore, but just so to prove to you that, that we'll have a sign, he actually, they build a huge fire that he winds up scrying in. And that, I don't know, it, that kind of reminded me of that for some reason. <laughs> I'd just forgotten this, about that scene. I need to read those books I, again. I need to read it again too. Um, yeah, we're huge Lawhead fans. Stephen Lawhead, uh, the Pendragon Cycle, uh, the Song of Albion trilogy, 
uh, great books. Yeah. And uh, really a lot of, of, of good theological information in them, even though they're fiction and they kind of fantasy. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, so, so that, that kind of reminded me of that scene. But the I'm actually going to say something here that's different than Heiser's work. Okay. I'm not going to contradict it. I'm just going <laughs> to point out something else that I think okay. is interesting here. So, you know, before we've talked about how so much of when people get into trouble, it's because they their imagination fails and they don't see any way out based on the information they're given uh, and they don't extrapolate another way to do things. Mm-hmm. And so I think this kind of falls into that David being a man of after God's own heart is that David's presented with, here's what's going to happen. And he's like, nope, there's another way to do it. I'm going to create a new future. Yeah. It's the Kobayashi Maru, you know, yeah. just <laughs> <laughs> it changed the rules, it changed the rules of the game. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, cause that's one of the things I found interesting. I think it's Miriam brand was where I ran across that idea where, you know, when Abraham's bargaining with God about how many men is it going to take mm-hmm. to save the city that they kind of bargain down to 10 and there's not 10 righteous men in the city. Mm-hmm. But in Abraham's mind, the only way to save the righteous men is for the city to be saved. Right. And God's like, no, there's another way. You just take the person out of the city and then destroy it. Mm-hmm. And so that's, it, I think that's kind of an interesting uh, way of looking at things that possibly that is that David had that imagination, that creativity mm-hmm. that we don't ever see in Saul. Right, um, right. And we don't really see it in a lot of other characters, but David goes out of his way to, you know, I guess, problematically interpret the information <laughs> he's given. Um, but I know what you were going to go with was probably the fact that here here we have God saying something is going to happen, mm-hmm. and then David going, nah, I don't like that, and then <laughs> leaving. Because well, the, the Bible clearly does not say, yeah, they'll do it if you stay. Mm-hmm. You should get out of Dodge. It says it's going to happen. Yeah. And so this is really problematic for anyone who has a, uh, for what the, uh, what is it, uh, exhaustive divine determinism mm-hmm. type of view mm-hmm. uh, that whatever so, God decrees is going to happen. Right. And, yeah. you know, and I don't think it's necessarily God was unaware David was going to flee. Right. But we here we're either presented with God told David what was going to happen based on his current trajectory mm-hmm. and then david changed his trajectory right um because or, god didn't lie to david yeah or we, or we have god just outright lying yeah um or that you know there's always of course that uh you know you can always go with the oracle from the matrix style of things <laughs> you know of oh well god just told him what he needed to hear to get motivated right well, god could have just as easily said Get out of Kila. Right. You know, it's it's not <laughs> it's that really hard simple. to yeah. Much easier to say that than to say that than to say something that's false. Right. So where does that lie? That's a that creates a really big conundrum uh, in the way we interpret the Bible. Well, you know, when it when you look at this, it, I, I think it's very indicative of how God has invited humanity to to create the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, we get to participate in that. Um one of the the big things when the the prophets speak and they use the hadavar, it's kind of redundant because hadavar is the uh, the the word. So anyway, sorry, uh, but they speak with that creative word of God, and the the belief around that is is that in speaking those words, they actually create new possibilities. Mm-hmm. And if you notice most of the prophecies, if you do this, 
then this will happen. If you do that, then this will happen. And, and you get the the. And, and a, a, good, a good number of them do, but mm-hmm. then you also see where, who is it? Who is the prophet who told the one king he was going to die, but then the king repented? Right, that's Isaiah with Hezekiah. Isaiah, that's what mm-hmm. I was thinking. Uh, I was like, I want to say it's Isaiah, but I'm not quite sure. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that he didn't even have the caveat. He said, this is going to happen. Right. And then he repented, and then God extended his life. You well, know, I, go to Jonah and Nineveh. Uh, Jonah walks in, you know, God's going to kill you all. And then he walks out and he gets, you know, a ringside seat waiting for the show. Yeah, one of and, the shortest sermons <laughs> ever. ever. Um, and God it, God has given his word through the prophet and the people repent, like you said, without that caveat mm-hmm. and without even being given a chance according to what was decreed. Mm-hmm. And they changed the future. And I think so often we get in this mindset that once God's put something in place that he doesn't make room for us. But I mean, there, there's so many times we can go back to Moses arguing with God about whether or not to destroy Israel. Right. And right. so the idea that David could say, I don't like the parameters you gave me, so I am going to do the Kobayashi Maru thing. I am going to change the rules. And, and God's okay with it because, you know, I, I, I think this is where our father helped us. Our dad liked it when we came up with creative solutions, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and he celebrated that. And so the fact that that we were thinking, and so I think God's doing the same thing with David here. Okay, you, you got it. You understand. As a king, you're going to have to make decisions. You're going to have to use your mm-hmm. skills of reasoning, your military tactics. All of this is going to come into play because guess what? Even though I anointed you and I called you, I did not wipe out your brain cells, and I didn't turn you into some kind of robot. I I actually want you, and the only way you're still you is if you are engaging all of these aspects of who you are. Right. And so um, I know for some people that's going to be a really hard thing to say but or to accept. I just, you know, if you really do believe in meticulous determination— one of the things I encourage you to do is go through the book of Deuteronomy and just circle how many times you see the word if. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and, you know, if it is about predetermined future and everything being decreed as it will happen, then why does God allow so many places for people to make these choices? And right, so, right. And yeah. And if, and if you don't think that the if actually means if, then. God's a liar. Right. And of course, you know, people say, oh, well, it's divine baby talk because people didn't understand as much as we do right now. Yes. I think that's completely bogus. I mean, people have been deep thinkers for a very long time. And we have evidence of this. Well, it's it's narcissistic for us to think that we're that much more spiritually advanced. um, Oh, yeah. You know, and and anyway, but we could go, I could go all day talking about the problems with that and Maybe we'll do an episode on that at some point. <laughs> well, uh, well, and I think this this story does lend itself to that because now you really have to grapple with it in, in real, tangible terms. And it's not an abstract and it's not some theological ideology. It, it's what happened. Yeah. And so either the and, Bible isn't telling us what happened and it's lying to us or our ideology is wrong. Yeah, and before anyone says we shouldn't use the narrative here... <laughs> We should never. I, I've heard. Well, you shouldn't use narrative to make theolo- to to derive theology. So I'm going to say, if that's your take, please go read Paul, because you're <laughs> contradicting Paul, 
in a part that's not narrative, mm-hmm. where he says that all scripture is God breathed and is good for teaching and correcting. And <laughs> well, and then what do you do with the gospels? I mean, right, most of that's narrative. <laughs> yeah, it's yes, there. So that's well, and there there is a Jewish principle that you do not apply any law unless you have a narrative to explain how the law is applied. So that that's part of uh, how they approach the Bible, how they would approach the Bible in Jesus' day. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's part of the reason why when Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees and says, you know, why are you letting your disciples do this? What's he refer back to? The narrative of David at the, at the temple right. or at the uh, place of worship. Yeah, in so, you, so you have Jesus <laughs> using a narrative to build theology. Right. And the other one, of course, we haven't really, we haven't really used any Psalms on this, but not yet. <laughs> the other one, you know, that we hear is you can't use the poetic books to really build theology, and that's false. You can't use poetry to build mm-hmm. theology. I'm like, well, that's false because Deuteronomy 32, that's exactly what God does. He uses what? a song to teach theology. God Himself, like, literally, literally, giving God, this, <laughs> yes, teaches Moses a song to teach the people. So. You know, and the you, next... you can do with that what you will, but you are definitely contradicting the Bible if you believe that you can't use narrative or songs <laughs> right. to teach theology. Well, and the, the psalm we're going to go into next actually is specifically a psalm to teach. So what is, he te- what is it teaching? It's going to be teaching us theology. Right. And right. so, uh, yeah. Because <laughs> yeah, one, one of the big critiques on Heiser's uh, Deuteronomy, there, or the, his breakdown of psalms, Someone said, Heiser lets the poetry do a lot of theological heavy lifting. It's like, you let, oh my gosh, you let the Bible do the (laughs) theological heavy lifting. What? Oh my word. How dare you? (laughs) Everyone panic. Yeah. So I'm going to get off of that and stop being, I'm I'm getting a little snarky with it. I'm sorry. I shouldn't. Well, I'm seeing some energy from you this morning. Yeah. Just just a little, I I just think those arguments are are absurd Mm -hmm. and you know, and and I feel like I've given you a pretty good little reason why reason why I haven't just said the argument's absurd and dismissed it, but those are those are my reasons, that, right? You know, well, and that the Bible obviously does that. Jesus uses narrative to teach theology. God uses songs to teach theology, and so if that's not okay, go talk to God. Go talk to Jesus. Tell him they screwed up when they wrote the Bible. Right. All right. So there we go. Uh, yeah, and this is the way conversations with you and I usually go when there's not microphones in front of us. Well, yeah. <laughs> we well, tone it way down for the show, guys. No, I mean, uh, sarcasm is our second language. Uh, so back to the story, uh, verse 13, David sends and his 600 men scatter. Uh, it says they go wherever they could go. So this is not an organized retreat. They're just getting out of Dodge. <laughs> that, that's all they're trying to do. The Monty and, Python runaway. Yes. <laughs> and so, you know, they're in the hill country and they're, they're waiting for the time they can be, be reunited. And we're, we're told that um, this future that God had decreed about being handed over by the men of Keilah never materialized. As a matter of fact, when, when Saul finds out David's left, the Bible says Saul gave up his expedition. Mm-hmm. So the fact that Saul hears this and says, well, it's not even worth my time. We we begin to see how yes we can impact what other people are doing by making the right decisions. So um, we like covered over like most of my notes. But one of the things I wanted to to <laughs> yeah one of the things I wanted to bring up is fatalism. 
it is not an indulgent, a true indulgence that true believers can entertain. And if okay. David had just accepted God's decree as, okay, this is the way it's going to be, and I'm just going to sit here and wait for them to carry me off, right? It, he he would have been indulging in fatalism. I mean, God's always a God of hope. And the fact that he provides a, a way of an escape, even though it's not what he decreed, tells us again that God doesn't expect us just to give up. Right. And we don't have that luxury. And I think so many Christians today, and I did not mean to go here, but you know, you inspired me. Oh. Um, no. So many Christians today, when I'm looking on Facebook, I see a lot of, oh, we're living in the end times, and you know, it's the end of the world, and you know, everything's so terrible, and, and it's just like, oh, I just want to go hide in the mountains and wait for Jesus to come back. I mean, don't get me wrong, that appeals to me too. Yeah, uh, I mean, I yeah, like the mountains. Yeah, and so, but I don't think we have that right. I, I don't think we just get to go, this is, oh, look, this is where we get to give up. We have to continue fighting against the powers of evil, and we have to continue trying to demonstrate God's rule in our life so that God's rule can be manifest on this earth so others can be inspired to follow him. And the minute we just kind of we give up, we're letting Saul come in and take us. I mean, you know, what, or what Saul represents. And so... I can see that. I, I just... I get frustrated. I mean, because, I mean, there's a part of me that would really just like to go sit and pout in a corner because things aren't the way I think they should be. But again, God, you know, kind of kicks me in the butt occasionally and reminds me that I'm not allowed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like a good parent should, but I have to get over it. So verse 14, and David remind, uh, remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country, in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought, his, sought him every day. But God did not give him into his hand. So David's uh, in these strongholds. These, these are naturally occurring kind of just rock outcroppings and caves that were good strategic fighting positions. I mean, matter of fact, you can still go to this area and see just how rough the terrain is. Mm. Uh, I can't imagine trying to, to chase down someone in this area. Especially when you're carrying a sword and any kind of armor. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And then David... Um, you know, he, he's back home in the wilds. I mean, this is where he started out. He was a shepherd. He knows what it's like to lead flocks of sheep. And I don't know if you've ever led sheep anywhere or tried to drive sheep anywhere. They are not the most graceful animals. Um, I think it depends on what kind of sheep. I think, I think if, you're have, you think if you have mountain sheep, they're going to be a little more uh, hardy. Yeah, they aren't going to be as stupid as the sheep I've had. I think, I think, I think the uh, breeds of sheep we have in the U.S. have been kind of... <laughs> I don't know. I think the intelligence has been bred out of them. I, I, I'm like it, thinking of the way we, we've bred uh, modern breeds down from the ones that were ancient. Of course, I'm immediately thinking of the Chewini that lives at my house and you're just going, yeah, the intelligence very well may have been bred out of them. Uh, so, yeah. but, I, but still, it's going to be a hard job getting them through these trails and in these caves and what have you. It, it's, it takes some skill. And now David uses that skill with his men and helping them find appropriate places to hide and mm. providing for the people the same way he would have provided for his flocks in a very real, you know, you can see the metaphor being lived out. Right. And so the other metaphor that we can be seeing lived out is this wilderness language. Now immediately we're thinking of the 40 years in the, in the desert, mm-hmm. and we've mm-hmm. been reminded Saul is the Pharaoh of David's day. And so the fact that um, David now, his life, we've, we've 
spoke of it briefly before, but David's life really is kind of a microcosm of the entire history of Israel being played out in one person. And so he, he has to spend his time uh, in the desert. And the thing is, David's Pharaoh isn't overcome by the sea. And there's this moment where you kind of have to ask, why is God waiting so long for, for Saul to be taken out so that David can get on with it? Because we still have the rest of 1 Samuel to get through, and it's just one big chase scene. Right. But I love this. This is from uh, Rabbi Hirsch, and I just wanted to read this quote because it, it's really good. It says, if proper living would automatically lead to immediate reward and punishment of the self- selfishness and not an exercise of free will and the performance of God's will would be selfish. I'm sorry, it, it's got a weird break. Selfishness would be the motivation for man's acts. As such, a righteous man's suffering are actually proof of God's love and interest in his moral improvement and well-being because it means that God is testing him to prove that he is indeed acting out of faith. Hmm. And I mean, I don't like it, but I do. Yeah. I mean, because there has to be a point. I, I, I think any of us who've been aware realize there's just points in our lives where it seems like God's gotten held up on the train somewhere and, mm-hmm, and not, mm-hmm. not arriving with whatever we believe he should arrive. And, and even good things. I know lots of people who've been called into ministry, who've gone to seminary, who've worked really hard. And they're doing some other job. Uh, they're, you know, teaching, they're working at a bank or they're working in a fast food place. And they're like, mm-hmm. God, you know, I spent all this time and this money and this energy to do what you prepared me to do. Mm-hmm. Why can't I find any open doors? And I, I know a lot of my friends, even from seminary, who, who've stepped away from the faith because no, none of the doors opened as soon as they thought they should. Right. And, you know, and I do have a lot who are still holding on and still praying for and God to show them exactly where to plug in this particular gift. And so, you know, there are times I wonder where I mean, I'm supposed to be. That's, I mean, <laughs> I, I feel that it's, that's a lot of uh, where my journey's been is trying to find places to plug in and help and serve and mm-hmm. learn and, and help others grow. And it's just, you know, it can uh, be disheartening. I don't want to get too much into that, but yeah, it can be a little frustrating. And I, I, even today, I still feel like, you know, I, the podcast I feel like is helping people and I, I hope it is. And mm-hmm. um, we've gotten some really good feedback, but it's at the same time, there, there's other areas in my life where I'm like, we could be doing more, but we just haven't found that, that place yet. Well, and speaking of, of people with positive feedback, uh, Christine, one of our um, supporters, actually just wrote us a nice letter that we got yesterday. That or that I got, you've had it for I don't know if you, how long you had it, but anyway, I got to I read had it about yesterday. A week or so, um, uh, very, very sweet, and th- those do encourage me. And it was really cool to get a handwritten letter talking about what we did instead of, you know, instead I love of just an email. Yeah, no, I love the emails yeah, and I, I love yeah. the comments. Don't, but, don't stop with the emails yeah, if you right. have questions or comments. Yeah. But you know, just that extra step, it, it was just so thoughtful. So anyway, verses 15 and 16, uh, David has accepted at this point that he, Saul's out to kill him and he's hiding in the, the wilderness of Ziph and Koresh. Uh, and Jonathan goes to David to strengthen his hand in God. Uh, now, this is the last time we're going to see Jonathan um, meet with David. The next time we're going to hear about him is in his death. Um, but it's interesting t- for me to note that Saul's going crazy trying to find David, and Jonathan just seems to walk into camp and say, what's up? You know, there, there's, no, um, there's no problem for him to find David. So 
this kind of speaks uh, and has been read as God's divine uh, protection, and we're going to see a little bit more evidence of why. But um, Jonathan's intent to strengthen David's hand in God, this, this is a unique phrase. We never find it. Now, we, we have the phrase to strengthen someone's hand, but the in God makes this a very peculiar thing for Jonathan to say. Uh, we, we don't have it any place else in the Bible. Uh, I don't know exactly what the significance of that is, but when we find those things, I think there is something there. Mm. But I think, you know, if I had to speculate, I think one of the things it shows is it's a reminder of Jonathan's character. And Jonathan has accepted uh, God's decree, which again, going back to the fatalism, Jonathan seems to be okay just going along with whatever's said. And again, leaders of Israel didn't have that luxury. Uh, they had to fight, and sometimes they had to to push back against God, not disrespectfully, but in a way to say, "Hey, this is this is not in keeping with your character." And that's mm-hmm. what Abraham was doing at Sodom. That's what uh, Moses was doing with God in the desert. And so Jonathan just did not have that element of that in his personality. So, um, verse seventeen, he said, uh, Jonathan said to David, "Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you." You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, knows this. So this is an interesting pronouncement uh, from Jonathan. Uh, he opens with the do not fear, and it almost sounds angelic. Yeah, and, yeah it's, it's really kind of a strange phrasing for him to use. Uh, I, I don't think the ESV does a really great job translating this verse. Uh, some of the nuances are missed. Now, the first part, you know, Saul isn't going to find you. You will be king. Absolutely, they're dead on. Those are kind of hard to, to um, get wrong. And, but it, it reads like a prophetic statement. It reads like Jonathan is pronouncing something directly from the Lord that's been revealed to him. But where the, the translation slips is the next phrase, and I will be next to you. And so it sounds just like, Oh well, I'm 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 going to give you my support. I, I'm 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 there for you, buddy. Uh, but what he says that the word is, is misnea, uh, and it's uh, a copy, a double, a second. And we find this word used with Joseph whenever he's serving under Pharaoh. He he is the second, mm-hmm. and so or the viceroy o- over Egypt, Mordecai when he's second to Xerxes in Esther. So the idea of kind of almost a co-regent. Now, we have to be careful here because I think it could sound like Jonathan's being a little self-serving. You know, hey, you know, you've be king. I get to be right alongside of you. We'll rule the land together. It's going to be great. But I don't feel like that's in keeping with Jonathan's character from what we've seen in the rest of the book. I think he's offering to help David secure the loyalty of all of Israel. Because when you go back and you read through uh, Judges and Samuel up to this point, anytime there's a battle, we have the troops of Israel numbered, Mm -hmm. and then we have the troops of Judah numbered. There's already a schism that's developed within the nation. And so David being from the tribe of Judah, getting the tribe of Benjamin on his side, that's going to be work, not to mention any other tribes. So if Jonathan is David's second, if he's his second in command or uh, co-regent, What's going to wind up happening is now Benjamin has a reason to support mm-hmm. this political mm-hmm. regime. And also it provides continuity uh, from the reign of Saul through the line of David. But of course, we know that that doesn't happen. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and then he, he concludes with Saul knows all of this. And before this, we had, um, we kind of had some doubts. How much did Saul know? How much did he really get? And here's Jonathan. Well, and I, I wonder here, here's my question is, did Jonathan inform Saul and then tell Saul, you know, possibly the reason that Saul's not there is Jonathan saying, you know what, there's no need to fight. Let me go to David. We'll see if he'll agree that even if he's king, I can still be second mm-hmm. in command. It's I'm, possible. I mean, that would make a lot of sense to me. Again, it's speculation. Right. But it seems like that would be one of the easier ways to go about things rather than just sneaking out and and doing whatever it is that Jonathan does. Well, know? and my, my question is, is could Jonathan do that? I mean, the, the past conversation we had with, with Saul is, you know, he'd lost his mind. Nobody told him about Jonathan's covenant with David and Jonathan stirring David up against him. So I don't mm-hmm. know if Jonathan could have even convinced Saul. I mean, I guess it'd depend on what day you caught Saul. Because yeah, it would depend on what day you caught him. Grief. It would depend on, you know, it, it would, and, and, you know, how long had, what was the time frame? How long had they been working on this? I mean, you're talking about David moving 600 men around. That's going to take some time. Right. right? So right. There, there may have been some time to work on it and that, you know, Jonathan's going, hey, Dave, we can see that David's an effective leader. And, and if he's the one who's supposed to be the next king, let's try to make it the best for us as we can. Yeah. And well, and you can almost see Jonathan trying to, to smooth things over. I mean, he, he has before. We, we've had evidence of that in the text where he has gone to his dad and like, you know, why should David die? What, what's his sin? What's his guilt? Yeah. Yeah. And so we, we have uh, Jonathan definitely trying to be the peacemaker. So Well, and, and even, even if Saul is this kind of... <laughs> this kind of narcissistic controlling person, mm-hmm. he might agree to to at one moment. And then I, comp- I mean, we've already seen him change his mind a hundred times. Oh yeah, so totally inconsistent and, and completely. I mean, he is that person in James, the double minded man, is unstable mm-hmm. in all his ways. And yes, I and that's the problem with Saul. You never know what you're going to get from him. With with David, you know what you're going to get from him. Right. Uh, and it, it, he's going to to act on impulse nine ten times out of ten. He he's going to be very passionate and convinced that he's right. Saul is just going to be stuck in his own paranoia, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that paranoia just kills him. And uh, you know, if you've ever lived with anyone who thinks the world's out to get them, uh, you know that's misery. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so we aren't going to name names. <laughs> but so versal. I don't know if I've lived with anyone who thinks the world's out to get them, but I, I've spent a lot of time with coworkers who just everything. Not anyone I work with now. I'm, I'm very, <laughs> should put that out there. Yeah, but just who thinks that everyone's out to get them for everything, and it it, it gets exhausting just listening to coworkers do it. I can't imagine like. Okay, so my little piece of advice on that. If you think everybody's out to get you, you need to repent of your arrogance. Nobody thinks of you that much. I, I promise you, nobody does. Yeah, so. I, I, yeah. Some someone uh, once told me, and I don't. I know this is apparently some kind of just idiom. You mm-hmm. know, it's like a truism, or, and it, but it made a lot of sense to me. Is you don't worry so much about what people think about you when you worry how, whenever you realize how little they do. Right. So. Think about you or just think. So, yeah. Well, 
yeah, you can take it wherever you want to, I guess. But yeah, so moving on. I'm good at reading into things. Um, so verse 19, um, the, the Ziphites, well, I'm sorry, let me go back to verse 18. Uh, Jonathan and David, like I said, this is the last time they meet. And Jonathan goes home, but David remains in the wilderness. And I, I'm always puzzled every time Jonathan doesn't stay with David, why doesn't he just stay with David? Um, I, I, I think the fact that Jonathan, and again, speculation, I think the fact that Jonathan can never cut those ties with Saul's household really is the reason why he can't go forward with mm-hmm. David. Um, you know, there's a reason why repentance is a big deal. And repentance isn't just feeling sorry for what you've done. Repentance is actually moving away from those things that draw you the wrong direction and getting right. out of right. those situations that aren't healthy. And so... Um, but the, the two part, they, they reaffirm their covenant. Every time they meet, you know, Jonathan is, is reminding David, hey, by the way, and uh, Rabbi Silver, he actually um, focuses a lot on the fact that he believes Jonathan knows that David is a killer. He's ruthless. And he, he really wants to reinforce that idea in David's mind. You owe me. You need to take care of my family. Mm-hmm. And he thinks that's why, David, why Jonathan is so adamant each time he's with David. To, to reaffirm that covenant. Um, that might be a little too far. I don't know. I mean, David is not afraid to take out his enemies. Right, obviously. Uh, yeah. Um, and even enemies that uh, we might say he shouldn't have taken out or that he should have been kinder or found a more fair way to deal mm-hmm. with. And I'm not even talking about Uriah at this point. I mean, I'm just enemies within his courts. Uh, there's, you know, how much did David love Jonathan? We, we really don't know. We know that Jonathan really, really loves David. Mm-hmm. And, and the relationship does seem to be kind of lopsided. Uh, but David, David's loyalty was to God, and David's call was to the kingship. And yep. he really hung on to that. And anything that got in the way uh, up until, you know, a few missteps that he had, has later in life, Anything that got in the way of him being that that person who could sit on the throne was not something he nurtured in his life. Right. So, verse 19, Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us? The strongholds of Horesh at the hills of Hakelah. These words in English are so much harder to read than when they're written <laughs> in Hebrew. Which is, the south, which is south of Jeshimon? And so the Ziphites were a, um, a clan within the tribe of Judah. Uh, they are very closely connected to Caleb. Um, there's even indications that they could have been descendants of Caleb. So uh, that's really interesting because they would have been, as one of the clans within the, the tribe of Judah, they would have been able to marry within uh, that tribe. So we really would have had that mix of, of, of the descendants of Judah, but also the the Kenite strain from Caleb. And so they are connected to David. Matter of fact, they are, um, their family, even if it's just distant family, they are related to David in some form. And that's what makes them approaching Saul so puzzling because they take the initiative, they go to Saul and they're ready to offer David up on a silver platter for, for Saul to take out. And in verse 20, they, they encourage Saul to follow the desire of his heart. And I, I think there's a teaching moment here. 
that whenever someone encourages you to follow the desire of your heart, especially when it goes against the dictates of God, you don't need to listen to them. Yeah. Especially if you're angry with someone or, you know, it's a little jealousy, a little rage going on. Yeah. the, The, the heart's deceitful guys. And we just need to remember that. So Saul says something interesting in verse 21. He says, may you be blessed by the Lord for you have had compassion on me. Okay, this verse is so messed up. What Saul's saying here is so, so wrong. So number one, he's asking that the Ziphites be blessed because they're trying to help him kill God's anointed king. Um, I, I think this shows us that you can dress any kind of political maneuvering up in religious garb, and it's been going on since the dawn of time. Mm-hmm. I mean, seriously, what kind of person blesses someone and asks that God bless someone who wants to murder someone. There's so many problems there. And the fact that Saul would even think that this is an appropriate response tells you that Saul is not thinking clearly. It's the manipulator role. I've got a disobedient peasant boy who thinks he's going to be king and he's treated me so badly and all this. It's that manipulator role mm-hmm. that he's always the victim. Yes. And it's obviously not true. I mean, it's like, hey, did, did you tell the Ziphites about the time that you mm-hmm. tried to kill him just because? Right. Like How many times you threw a spear at him yeah. when he was playing you a song? Yeah. Well, Because you know that, that, that you know whoever Saul's talking to is only getting his side of the story. So. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, uh, absolutely. And I think it's really interesting, too, because the, the rabbis, a lot of the rabbis actually defend Saul by saying that he thinks what he's doing is right, that he is fully convinced that, you know, as the anointed king, and I think, you know, that's one of the things we do have to hang on to as we read this, he was anointed king. Mm-hmm. He mm-hmm. did ha- have all those great signs and, and symbols and the manifestations that, that prove that God had chosen him. Yeah. And so... You know, there is an aspect that what he's doing would be considered correct if Samuel had not spoken to him. Right, right. And so the fact that that the the prophet had told him what's going on and Saul's rejecting it over and over again, because Samuel said it twice, at least. He may have said it three times, but I know at least twice. This is not what's going to happen. Right. You, you can't continue this way. And... You know, contrast that with David whenever he's in Moab and Gad shows up and Gad goes, get your butt back where you belong. And David, he goes. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, th- there's that distinction between Saul and David. Who's going to listen to God's word and who's going to act and going to act quickly and versus who's going to just ignore it because it's not what they want to hear. And that's that's the huge part of David's life that that makes him so admirable even when he does mess up. And, but the second thing that, that makes this so troubling is these words echo what happened in chapter 15 mm-hmm. when um, D- um, Saul had spared King Agag. Matter of fact, we find the word as chamal. Uh, it's translated as compassion or spare. Um, so if you're looking for it in the English, you aren't going to find compassion back in chapter 15 in the ESV. You're going to find spare, but it's the same Hebrew word. Okay. and. But it indicates that just like Agag was the wrong king to have compassion on or to spare, Saul is the wrong king to have compassion on 
and to spare in this moment. I mean, and this this word, uh, it doesn't appear that often. Uh, we find it four times in, in the book of Samuel itself. And remember, whenever you're doing um, studies, you want to look for words and phrases within the same book first, and then the same author, mm-hmm. and then in the rest of the, the Bible. And so in this time, we, we've got four times, one with Agag, it's where the word appears, here with Saul, also in Nathan's parable to David after Bathsheba, and as a correction to David, and then David's mercy or compassion on Mephibosheth. Yeah. And so the, the idea throughout the Bible is that it, it's undeserved mercy, it's undeserved grace, and apart from the Mephibosheth uh, episode, the writer of Samuel really almost uses it with that sinister turn, that, that this is, that the act of mercy and grace here is evil. And so you don't want to participate in it, and you certainly don't want to attribute it to God or godly motivation, because that's not what's happening. Right. And the third thing that's wrong with this, kings are supposed to extend compassion. They're not supposed to receive it. Right. And so the fact that Saul has said, you know, I, I thank you for, for showing me this great compassion. He, he's not even maintaining the appearance of, of the royal dignity and self-respect that he should have as a king. Can you imagine David, you know, doing this? I mean, this almost boot-looking move that, that Saul's mm-hmm. doing here. And it tells you how desperate Saul is. He can't find David. He needs somebody who's familiar with these hills and might have the manpower to go into the, you know, all the little um, trails and back trails to try to find David. And this is what they're offering him. And he's so relieved. He's not relying on God, but he sees a man-made, man-offered um, solution to his problem. And this is compassion, mm-hmm. not God's move on his behalf. Yeah. So it's very telling about where Saul is in his mental and emotional state that he would even degrade himself to say these words. Mm-hmm. So I think that's probably a good spot for us to... Yeah, yeah. I think uh, we can take a break there, and then we'll come back and finish up 23. Is that right? Yeah, uh, we'll finish 23, and then I think we're going to move into... I think we'll have time to do Psalm 54. Oh, fun. So Cool, cool. Well, that sounds good. Um, everyone out there, thanks for joining us. It's been a lot of fun this week. And uh, we hope you come back next time. Until then, uh, hit us up on the social media, Raven Creek SC, RavenCreekSC.com is the website. Um, write us a review. Recommend us to a friend. Recommend us to not Somebody. friends. <laughs> recommend us to one of the tenuous connections you have on Facebook. I don't know. Um, whatever it is you want to do. Um, I guess that's for the old folks. Uh, young people, uh, Twitter, and what's the other one they're using oh, now? TikTok's uh, huge right now. Yeah. I, I haven't I played know, on that one. I don't know if there's a way to share on that. I'm but old. I'm, I'm not really concerned about <laughs> that too much. Um, but we are hoping you are being helped out and encouraged by what we've got going on. And uh, if you are, please hit up um, iTunes. Write us a review. Yeah. Give us a, Subs- give us a rating on there. Hit subscribe, subscribe. on uh, YouTube also. Yeah, wherever you find us. or uh, <laughs> We're everywhere. <laughs> wherever you get your podcast. So until next time, have a great week, and we hope you come back next week. Thanks. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 
If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.